no basketball in my hand, but I don't think I'm going to need it today. Nice sunny sky out here outside of the Hempletic Podcast Studio. It's gorgeous out today. It is May. It is Mother's Day week leading into the weekend. I had a nice conversation with my aunt just a little while ago, and I was taught inviting her to come to my... Uh, I'm having a little event this Saturday, which is tomorrow from this launch, so it's a short notice. If you heard it after this, I'm sorry if you miss it. But I, I'm reserving uh, part of the Riot Room, which is a new venue in Rochester on East Avenue, near the corner of Alexander. Uh, it is a place where you can go and destroy stuff in a controlled setting, uh, get some of your angst out. Uh, they also have a wall of plates that you can throw pucks at for destroy some plates. So between two, you can definitely get some angst. But as you walk from the front door back to that area, it is a very visually appealing bar. So it is set up. I'm not going to tell you much about it other than to say the artwork is amazing. There was some really talented artists that were brought in there. And I, and in the back, there's a special setup for people who brought up in the 80s and the 90s that they will definitely feel like they may have been in their basement or living room going up. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But at 7 to 9 at the Riot Room, the Hempletic Podcast is going to take over that backside for a couple hours. Uh, friends and family and a couple former guests of mine show up. Uh, we'll do some destroying, but uh, at the very least, we will all be spreading the word and the message that we've done through this podcast. So this is a little celebration I'm trying to put on for everybody that has helped us grow the first 30 episodes. And this is episode 31, Mother's Day weekend. This is a special one for me, Mother's Day weekend. Uh, my mom passed nine years ago, and Mother's Day was uh, a very special time as far as Lilac Festival, always spending the day with my mother, the, the certain routines we go in. So I still go to Lilac Festival uh, every year on Mother's Day um, by myself, usually, usually ride my bike there, uh, unless, of course, my daughter's here or something. But it's usually by myself. I like to be alone and meditate a little bit that day uh, and think about my mother and, and enjoy those moments because I did, my mom was a big experience driven person. Um, so we were always out and about and lilacs and flowers. Uh, but I was talking to my aunt and she works at a flower shop now still, Fiervani Florist here in Rochester, New York. Uh, very good flower shop. She's been a flower ranger since she was ooh, 11 years old. Yeah, my aunt is amazing. She's a phenomenal. Uh, she's known she's known around the Rochester area, no doubt. She's very good at what she does. But I invited her to the event, and she said, Brian, I would love to come, but Mother's Day, that's my worst day, and I'm going to go home and crash right after work, and I can relate. So she will be working all day at the flower shop and then crashing on Saturday. So that would be my aunt. Um, my Our whole family used to be like that, so I think I've told the story before. I never, I don't think, was in school on the Friday before Mother's Day, Friday before Easter, uh, and definitely not on Valentine's Day every year. Those days, I was always in the in the flower shop, Smith Flower Shop. Um, and the and the person that's my guest today, this is really cool uh, because this man I've known longer than pretty much all but one person in my entire life, and that's only because I was inside of that person for an extra nine months. Uh, and when I came out, this guy was right there, and he was also at the flower shop for all these events. And uh, I have been I have been trying to pick the right time to have have this guy as my guest because uh, I want to make sure he saw the format and felt comfortable uh, enough to come on and be able to have a good chat with his son. Uh, but today we have with me my father. His name is Donald Lane. So please, let's together welcome Donald Lane to the podcast. <laughs> oh, thanks, guys. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Um, yeah, thanks. I'm looking, I've been looking forward to this and glad you had me on. And uh, just a word to follow up a little bit on what you just said. Uh, your mom was a terrific mother. I moved out of Rochester probably 25 years ago and uh, left knowing that uh, the kids and family were in good hand. Obviously, I came up whenever I could and talked to you guys whenever I could. However, I knew you guys were, she was the parental representative there in um, Rochester when I was gone, and uh, she will be missed. And she is missed. But at any rate, thanks for having me on. Uh, when I come into town, I'd love to actually uh, look and see how this uh, go to a live podcast and see how this all goes down. But anyhow, I've listened to all 30 of them, a couple of them more than once and had a great time. So that's it. And uh, you're, you're, you're on, well, I'm glad I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to hear that, Dad. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So no doubt. Uh, but we had a cl- close family. My dad, yeah, like you said, you did leave. Man, that was a long time ago. But uh, but prior to that, my dad was there every day. We had a lot of fun together. Our family loved to travel together. We did a lot of things. So so part of this episode is I want to paint a little picture of my father, uh, and I also want to paint a little picture of the telephone industry in general. But uh, but but dad, let's talk about becoming parents young, right? Like so back in the day when you guys were growing up. You were pretty much under the 16, 15, 17 years old. You're looking for that girl to marry and start your family with, right? Was that the norm on the streets? Like, that's what everybody was looking for. So tell me a little bit about, like, like back then. Oh, back in, back in that day, and uh, keep in mind, I was, it was 1969. So it was kind of like uh, a year into the uh, hippie um, uh, kind of revolution, so to speak. Uh, back in 69, I was 18 years old. And um, yeah, I was out there. I was quite, quite honestly, uh, embarrassing to say, I was a very late bloomer. Uh, my life uh, kind of revolved around my buddies playing sports after school on weekends. I uh, had a paper route when I was 11 and my first full-time job when I was 16. So, or not full-time, part-time job. So for me, I was a late bloomer. I didn't date a lot. I dated some, um, but anyhow, met your mother. I think I was around 17 years old when I met her. Ironically, I went to a dance and she was there with somebody else and he kind of treated her bad and told her it was over at the dance. I walked her home with a bunch of other friends. We got talking and that's uh, the rest of this history. But um, to answer your question a little more directly is uh, she, she uh, in those days, you either got married, had kids right away, or you just did the free love thing and, um, you know, got married whenever, had kids late in life and enjoyed yourself in your 20s. Um, we both came from traditional families and, um, we took the route, the route of getting married early. Uh, I was 20, uh, and your mom was, I believe 19 at the time. And, uh, we decided that we were going to start our family and, um, we did, uh, I was, uh, 21, 20 when you were born, uh, soon to be 21 years old. So had kids early. I, one of the best decisions I ever made in my life only because for me, yes, I watched my friends going out and having a good time. I was home. I was working full time. 
uh, got a job right out of high school, actually got a job in high school, working uh, half days at work and half day at school as part of a co-op program. But at any rate, um, caused uh, having the kid early caused us or gave us, uh, we both matured earlier uh, than some of our friends. And we had that goal to become, you know, parents, white picket fence, blah, blah, blah. And uh, <clears throat> we worked hard to, uh, to get that. So missed out a little bit, but ironically the best decision I made because I got to hang with my kids, play with my kids. I was the, you know, you know, the neighborhood kids would come over and say, Hey, can your dad come out and throw football around for us or play some football? And oh no, they, they didn't have to say that. Cause we already had you out there before <laughs> exactly. you had the chance to say that. <laughs> exactly. Right. And, and we enjoyed the hell out of it. And guess what? I had my first grandkid and I think it was like 43, 44 years old. I had my first grandkid. Yeah, I'm jealous. You're going to beat me. Yeah. You beat me and I uh, got to play with, with my grandkids, go out and kick a soccer ball around with them and stuff that a lot of people didn't do because they didn't even have kids till their thirties. And by the time they had grandkids, they were in their sixties. So getting married early, um, having my kids early, getting to enjoy them, getting to enjoy them. And heck, I'm 67 years old. Uh, I'll be 68 and I'm going to have my first great grandchild. So uh, that's kind of the way it was. You either had fun and did the love, uh, you know, the free love type of thing, or you had kids and we decided to go that route. And no and, regrets. Uh, yeah, you, no. And you, and you said something interesting that I brought up other times and it's, it's nice to relate with, with you guys as well. As you said, you were both a little more mature maybe than other people your age back then. Um, it, what do you think? Is that because you think that mom was in, in the family business and, and, and then you were the, you know, just because of the role in your family that you always had? Uh, yeah, I think that was part of it. I mean, we certainly, uh, were, uh, I think it was the way we were raised. I, I think, the fact she was working, like you said, in the family florist business for years since she was probably 10, 12 years old. So she had that, you know, responsibility and, and that kind of thing. And the role I had in my family, you know, yeah, I, believe it or not, having the paperwork 11, 12 years old, I paid room and board out of the paper route. First time job, paid room and board. Never got handed anything, paid for my first car, paid for my insurance, blah, blah, blah. So I think that helped us mature so that we were ready for it. Jason, we had our first house um, probably about a year, uh, not even a year after you we were born. We were in our first home. So, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it was the way we were raised, for sure. I, got, I, I, I know that had a lot to do with uh, forming my character and the same for your mom. He came, she came from a strong family. I love every one of them uh, to death to this day. They were a great family for me, second family for me. But uh, I think that all kind of gelled in together and that's why we were ready. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, and then uh, what? You guys basically got married and then well, a month later you, you consummated me. Isn't that how it worked? Yeah, it was probably pretty close to that. Uh, yeah, I, I would say within a month or two. I don't think, um, yeah, she didn't, uh, we were ready. So I think it was a mutual decision. Now you got married in 70, right? 1970? Yes, married? 1970. Yep. And then I was born in March of 72. Right. So we probably, in, you know, had six months before you were actually consummated, but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, but so, yeah, so, pretty close. 
So uh, first, before we let's continue about mom's the business, family business, and how you related before we go into telephone and your career yep, where you yep. take off from there. But let's, so so how was it? Uh, was it overwhelming? Now now my grandfather, my mom's father was a pretty amazing guy. He could have been pretty overwhelming if you didn't know him well. But but generally speaking, like being around this family business, from you being one of the sons in law that were basically dragged into helping all the holidays and being a part of being required to be a part of that business. Uh, tell me from your perspective how that whole experience went for you. Well, uh, being a part of your mother, your wife's family's business, right? Like that's what it comes it, down to. I, I'll be honest with you. It was like a no brainer. As you know, Brian, I'm a, a type A personality. Uh, it kind of fit. It was a fit for me, but I, I, the family, her family was so good to me. Marion Young bringing me in, accepting me. It was part of the business, part of the routine. It wasn't anything I really had to adjust to. It was just, you know, I, I, just like everybody in my family, you, Chris, Kim, everybody, you're there to help people. And when somebody needed you and, you know, I had a job, I had vacation time, I took vacation time and I worked in the flower business for a long, long time. But uh, getting to know Smitty and uh, my uh, your grandfather, Smitty, in a, a work environment was a little bit different. Yeah, he could be tough and he laid down a lot the way think he wanted things done. But to be honest with you, it was never uncomfortable. It was I loved my brother-in-laws that I worked with, um, you know, and uh, my uh, uh, not only your mom's brothers, but uh, working with your dad, the girls, everybody got along so good. Uh, Yeah, it got tense sometimes, but it was more because there was a lot had to be done in a short period of time rather than not getting along. So I'll be honest with you, Brian, I, uh, I, it was just a, another job helping people out that needed help. So. Yeah. And I remember you used to quiz me on the streets cause I basically would be the third, <laughs> the second in a van as a young kid. Right. So we'd have yep. one of the, uh, one of the uncles or one of the, one of the, yeah, one of the uncles or sons-in-law would, would be the driver and that one of the, uh, cousins or, or, or grandchildren would be the sidekick of that person because it made it more efficient oh, to deliver yeah. flowers that way. So I remember my dad would quiz me on, people always wonder how I knew street. Oh, you worked for the post office 18 years. No, I, I would go deliver my dad in zone 17. <laughs> and then like a week later, him and I would be driving him up with our family or something. He'd be quizzing me out. What street's that? Where's that street? Like, you remember doing that? Oh yeah, absolutely. And you got to remember when we did this, Brian, and you give, you really think about hard and, you know, life is, you know, things, uh, technology has caught on. There was no GPSs in those days. There was no cell phones in those days. You were learning the streets, you know, off of a map. And that's where having a runner in the truck with you was so valuable because you're out there sometimes in the dead of winter, depending on mother, when uh, uh, the other holidays fell, Christmas time, making deliveries and stuff like that. And you need somebody to look at, look for street numbers, look for street names. And after a while, after a couple of years, we knew that zone like the back of our hand. 
but uh, there was no yeah, GPS. Zone 21, you didn't, zone 17, five, yeah. yeah. You were strictly counting on me, counting on a 10-year-old kid sitting next to me to look at a map and say, oh, Dad, you got to go up here, you know? So, yeah, part of part of it was learning it, quizzing it, and stuff. I would have loved to have a GPS on. Just like I would have loved to have a DVD player in my car so when we went on vacation, you guys didn't fight all the time. You could watch movies. <laughs> we didn't have that till uh, we were in our high school age before yeah, we finally exactly. got the hat. Exactly. But anyhow. <laughs> oh, man. Torture. And that's what our thing was, the long trips. But yeah, so the perspective from the family business. Yeah. I mean, it brought us all tighter. I mean, uh, then when we had the cottage together, everything else, I remember, I remember the grandpa's retirement party, you and my uncle Joe, and my uncle Mark put on a nice presentation for my, for basically a roast for my grandpa. Oh, yeah. That was the best. You got it him was, back for all hilarious. the torture he gave you over the years, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We gave him a hard time in his retirement for sure. Heck yeah. And it was the ironic thing was he took care of his son in laws too. He knew we were taking time off of work to come and help him out. He paid us good. And, uh, for the most part, we got paid more than his daughters who work with him full time for 10 years. And here we'd come in, you know, one, two days at mother's day, a couple days at Valentine's day. And we got paid more than they did. That was always a, a little, um, talking point with the girls around, uh, around the house. Of course it was. <laughs> he took he took care of us. He definitely took care of us. Smitty was a good guy. Uh, good guy. Yeah, he was smart businessman. And and the the good thing for me too, you know, and you you learn a lot from other people. My dad worked at Kodak for 30 years. All my friends' parents worked at Kodak, Kodak or Xerox, Bausch and Lamb, something like that. I I was never involved in an individual family run business. So you learn a lot too. And you learn a lot of about families working together. You know, everybody says you can't work with family. I can tell you something. If it's the Smith family, you can work with them because they all got along uh, and uh, we enjoyed doing it. And we kind of look forward to getting out of our regular jobs and spending a couple of days helping out down there, you know. So I know they say don't go in business with family and friends, but I can tell you it worked at the flower shop for sure. I figured at one time I counted that we had pretty much 15 family members probably at our, in our heyday at one time, you know, obviously when I was younger, it was a few less and, but it was pretty much 15 once, once, you know, some of the kids got older, those 15 of us pretty much at the shop every holiday. Oh, absolutely. Between the girls, the designers and Smitty and Fran would come in and help out. And then we had, yeah, cause you figure, yeah, exactly. Grandpa, grandma, you, Janice, J- J- Jill, Joe, J- Jennifer, uh, Mark. Well, actually not Jennifer, Mark. Um, I mean, it was 15 of Jeff, Jerry. Uh, I mean, Oh yeah. Then, and you guys running me, for Chris, us. I mean, Kimmy. Yeah. Me, Chris, <laughs> Kimmy, Ryan. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nuts. And we all got along and still sang and danced and still saw each other 35 weekends a year. Oh, yeah. The big event of the year was the Flores dinner. We had a riot. We set the standards at those dinners for <laughs> people imagine. having a good time. You know, I never went to one of those, but that's funny. I never even, I never, I probably, I don't think I remember stories about that. That's so yeah. funny you say that. Like, where do they used to have it? Tell, tell me about that. I mean, because oh, Flores were partiers, uh, man. They're partiers They had it at Wonkies. Um, they, uh, they, I, I can't tell you. There was a different place every year, 
and they were generally a party house. You'd get 100, 150 people there. It was every florist in the city of uh, in the city of Rochester and all their help and all their drivers and, uh, and the suppliers that would supply the flowers to the flower shops. So it was a pretty, pretty big deal. And it was a good time. We always had a good time. And it, and it was more special because I've told this before, but my, my grandfather and a couple other florists started a floral pool where all yep. the florists of Rochester bring all their flowers to one spot and distribute them by zip code. Uh, and then they pay each other based on who does what and where. So it makes it more convenient for everybody to for deliveries across Rochester. It was, it was a yep. huge, successful thing. And my grandfather was one of the people that helped founded that. Oh, yeah. uh, and that's one of the reasons why that big dinner was so special too, because not only did you see these people at that dinner once a year, you're seeing them all the holidays, all the drivers are seeing each other on the holidays in the pool because everybody's running around giving each other flowers. Like imagine this. A small warehouse of like maybe what was it, Dad? Fifteen thousand feet, maybe. If it twenty thousand feet in there, okay, and a bunch of delivery old flower vans, like from the eighties, the vans <laughs> all pile into this freaking room, empty out their vans into on the wooden tables with pink yep. slips around the outside perimeter of the horseshoe and yep. with the zip code boards over the top of each person's spot. Yep. And then you'd empty out all your van and then everybody else put their stuff for your zip codes and then you would have to repack your van in an order to be able to deliver it and then get out of there in a timely fashion. Oh yeah, for sure. Right? And I mean, it was an amazing crunch in that little facility. Oh yeah. And and I think the florist had a goal to drive the drivers crazy. They would get the most unbalanced vases to put the flowers in so that you put it in your truck and you had to have 12 hands in there keeping things from falling over. But, we had uh, these metal. We had we had these metal um, racks. stands. But they still fall off the yeah. sides. No, they did. It was horrible because some of those, <laughs> yeah, because some people wanted the pretty vases. He's right there. And then if I ever broke a vase and I had to go back to the shop oh and we God. broke someone else's flower shop's vase because we mishandled it in the truck. Oh, you did not want the rat. It wasn't me. My grandfather I was worried about. It was my mother and my uh, aunt. Exactly. Oh, I we used to go back there and tell them that we were better designers than they were. Because we'd have to go in and you'd have a vase fall over and you'd have to redesign it without a picture in front of you to make it look good enough. So. Presentable. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah. You're right. Good I was time. designing in the back of those trucks at 10 years old. Some of these memories are piling back right now. Trying to oh. staple that green paper together where the flowers rip through it. And, oh, dear. We had to, we had to quit. Now, and thank God Smitty and the girls didn't know half the time we had to do that. But it wasn't oh, something man. you went back and bragged about, really. No, we told Smitty maybe when we were on his boat uh, at, uh, on Lake Ontario while we were dragging his boat through the muck, maybe then we'd tell him because he couldn't yell at us then. For sure. Hey, wait, Grandpa, we're dragging your boat through the muck right now, but just so you know, yeah, we had to refix like 12 sets of the flowers last Valentine's Day. <laughs> Oh yeah, good oh, times. A lot of it. good times there for sure. So when you were doing that, though, I mean, you were raising three kids. So it was me, and my brother, and my sister, and you were starting a career with the with the telephone company that actually became very successful for you. So, but I, but I want to. I was a little disappointed because I just pulled up on Wikipedia the Rochester Telephone Company. There's not much there. I don't think, I think if someone was really smart and jumped on Wikipedia and they used the Rochester Telephone Company, which started in New York in 1920, uh, it was ch then changed to Frontier uh, Corp. in 1994, but a little background on, on Rochester Telephone. Rochester Telephone and the people who started it 
ended up running a lot of big of the telephone industry in the United States. Is that a correct statement, Dan? Yeah, yeah, actually they did. In in 1990-something, when they broke apart AT&T and all these small phone companies across the country um, started up, the people were recruiting out of Rochester telephone. We had a, an extremely good reputation for a small independent telephone company. Uh, you know, the way it was run, uh, the, the training we got, the way our people worked. And when all those look, I used to get calls at work all the time to see if there was interest in me leaving Rochester Tell. And I'm just one of many, many people that got those calls. But, so, so let's talk a little bit how first, because you just didn't run in and start working in a telephone company. So <laughs> the, your high school background was like a little bit of a trade type high school and then you kind of worked into it, right? So explain yeah, how you got into in, the telephone in, industry originally. Yep. In the old uh, days of Edison Tech High School, it was a vocational high school. And you would go there in your first freshman year, they'd give you a taste of 10 different trades. And then as a, a freshman in high school, you had to pick the trade you wanted to go into as a sophomore. So I picked the electrical trade um, and spent the next three years learning uh, basic electricity. And uh, so at any rate, you interviewed uh, with a bunch of companies uh, around the November time frame of your senior year and then you um, waited to see if anybody wanted to offer you a job i was offered a job at rochester tell and um uh rochester gas and electric and and uh, i made my choice based on for whatever reason i always wanted to work for the phone company and the uh rg e they were going to hire me on as somebody that sat in a building and read meters on a wall all day and wrote reports and, or wrote the data down. And I decided that wasn't for me. So I went with Rochester Tell. And upon graduation in, in June, uh, you were unemployed and it was up to the companies to rehire you if they wanted to. And they did. So I never went to college till I was 33 years old uh, and started going to night school and and eventually walked away with a bachelor's degree after about eight nine eight or nine years going to night school but so what, uh, did, what did it look like walking into your first uh telephone company job like because oh, what oh it is God. now because because what it is now to then so i really wanted to paint an accurate picture so we're talking about 1969 right now maybe is that the year 1968 uh, you walked it was into a company for the first time 69 yeah. okay so 1969 you walked it, in a small building or something tell me describe uh, it was the experience enormous in, yeah, it, well it was a good sized building i mean uh but i i walked in i was uh, uh 17 years old when i started and I had never, I had done paperwork and worked at the Rochester General Hospital in the kitchen. That was my work experience. I walked in there and um, the ceilings were like 30 foot tall. Um, it was noisier than uh, I'll get out. And I walked in there not, and, and I got all these older guys and older to me was guys in their 20s, 30s. I was 17 years old and I looked about 13. And I walked in there with the, my tail between my legs. and uh, But with the determination I was going to do the job, 
I got introduced to everybody. I was in the and first time in my life anybody called me Donnie. It was also always Don or Donald. And I was so young looking, they took me under their wing. I will never, ever be able to thank that group of people uh, because they made me, uh, uh, give me the help I needed to succeed in that business. And it was, uh, I think it was part of my drive, but uh, in my E-type personality and wanting to improve, wanting to be the best I could be, but I couldn't have done it with them. But anyhow, you walked in there and in the original days of Rochester Tell when I started, uh, everything was electrical mechanical and we had of of one one um story 30 foot ceilings uh half of it was a switch room with the switching gear the other was frames with wiring that you would wire on cables on a reel and you go and wire it to get the basically get dial tone from the clicking stuff the electrical mechanical out to the frame and you'd wire these cross connects in and they would then go out into a cable out to people's houses. So, but it was noisier than hell. The electrical mechanical switches was constant clicking. And, um, but anyhow, and in the basement was and the I remember, power room and I remember, with batteries. Yeah, so you're talking, what's the square footage? Of this? Are you talking about the main facility now or are you talking about one of the uh associates I'm, I'm talking where i started which was one of the gotcha. it was on the corner of lexington not on the corner but close to the corner of lexington and uh dewey avenue lexington avenue and dewey avenue mm -hmm. uh and, and i was in that building i remember as a kid i remember the clicking i remember yeah. the, that building is still there now i believe yes now some buildings like the downtown biz uh, building that was on stone street was three stories tall and they had a dupa. It was three separate off or two separate offices across three floors because the subscribers in the downtown area, they might have had 40,000 subscribers. I My building maybe served uh, 8,000 in the immediate right, so area of that building. OK, so your building where that was in the size of an sheer everything of it. That only serviced 8,000 homes. Yes. But they, you got to remember, too, there was probably 15 buildings like that throughout the city. I know that's what I wanted to exactly. I'm trying to point the, yeah. how the network used to be. How, there how was one on Norton big, Street yeah. by uh, Ben Franklin High School. There was one on Norton Street there. There was Merchants Road. I mean, they were throughout the whole city. So each mm -hmm. one so served basically the each one of these Exactly. The immediate streets yeah. around it, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, and, and the one of the great things about this is people that worked in this building, you're, you're the clicking that you remember, and it was constant, click, 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 click. But the people that worked on that gear, including myself, after a couple of years, I went from a wire jockey running wire on the, the one side of the building to actually they trained me to maintain the switching gear. But you could walk through there and tell if something was wrong because there was a pattern to the clicking. So if there was all click, 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 and all of a sudden you get click, 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 click then, hey, something's wrong, you know? So you got in tune with this equipment and you could tell something was wrong with a call progress just by the way the switch sound. The witch, and that sounded cool. like that from probably six in the morning till eight 
constant clicking. It, it was 24 hours a day, but the at 6, 7 o'clock at night, when uh, businesses would close, that kind of thing, the clicking would die down. It would still be there, but nothing like during the most, you know, the, the busiest time of the day. Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. So, it, and you could tell, cool. I mean, I was there when, if you remember, uh, Pope, one of the popes was assassinated or attempted uh, assassination on the pope. That, all the clicking went crazy and all of a sudden it stopped. And the reason it stopped, every bit of gear was tied up. No other calls could be made. So every once everything is tied up and the calls are all up, you have no more equipment for the next guy going to try and get dial tone. So it was it was very interesting. Oh, yeah, everybody everybody called and then they stayed on the line. Yeah, talking, and you know. we knew something was going on. We immediately said somebody turn on the radio because the clicking went so crazy. You know, it went and sure enough, somebody said there was an attempt on uh, the Pope. So. Interesting. Wow. And, and Yeah, that's so cool. You don't think about the little things like that. I love that stuff. So, all right, so you, you went from a building like that, and then obviously you must have – what was the next step for the telephone industry from there? Well, after that, one by one, that was strictly electrical mechanical switching. The next step they went to was switches that had kind of a, a really basic computer front end, but it still ran – the electrical mechanical equipment, but the front end was more of a computer base. Now we only probably had um, three switches like that. And we skipped from electrical mechanical to the five ESS, which was all computer other than the wires that go out to the customers. But aside from that, it was strictly a, a computer switch. And, uh, and the building I was in, when they put the switch in there, it took probably 10% of the, the footprint of the electrical mechanical switch. So these switches, all of a sudden, the, the whatever it was, say a 8,000 square foot room, had equipment in only about 900 square foot. Uh -huh. And the rest yep. was now some of the switches, they actually left the old gear in there in mine. They actually tore it all down. But so what we had to do is go through these conversions in all 18 switches, I think, or whatever it was, 20 that we had at the time where they would build these computers and build all the customers in there. And at three o'clock in the morning, some Saturday morning, the slowest time of the week, they would pull the plug on the old one. And put the plug in. That's very basic. What I'm telling you is a lot involved. But they no, would. So, yeah, I'm gonna, I, yeah, we're gonna. I'm gonna ask different questions to get to that. But yeah, no, I like the, this general. You're good. Keep going, please. Yep, they would basically cut all the wires going to the old switch, and they had, and they were bridged on. And once they cut the old ones over, the new ones took over. And so, and and it, you talk about people sitting on pins and needles. The first switch they cut over. Uh, because we didn't know it was going to work, right? So uh, at any rate, we made it through all 18 of them. We had a team that went around. I did two or three of them um, 
uh, as I was part of a team that did two or three of the conversions. The building at Stone Street downtown I talked to you about had three floors of equipment, ended up having a third of one floor that did the work of all three floors. And you you go from an so now what year is this, by the way? I'm sorry. Yeah, what year is this? What year is this that you're talking about? These first uh, switches they, being turned over like this. They from 69 started, to uh, well, from 69, I'm going to say it was like 69 to 84, probably in the mid 80s, they started converting over. So you were doing all them. So it was still manually all the way over to the mid 80s. Uh, yeah, so to speak. I mean, it was electrical, mechanical. It was automated. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I know, but it's but, still, yeah, I get you. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. the old equipment. I was, okay, that's cool. So now, were you asked to go to training? I, I don't remember, you know, as a kid with everything going on, you were also a baseball coach at the time for GCD. <laughs> you were running the Red Wings ticket sales. Right. Uh, yeah, my dad was extremely active, uh, hanging out with us, playing basketball with me because I kept saying basketball daddy, all, all this stuff going on at the same <laughs> time. But so, so mid, mid 80s, I'm now like sixth, seventh, eighth grade. Yep. So, and you went to school about this time too. Right. Did you go to school after these switches started getting switched or at the same time or how did that work? Yeah, I was together? probably in the second class to go to 5ESS school, which was the computer equipment. So basically that's what a big they deal. would do. That's is, a big deal. That's like, that's like the second class overall for 5ESS, right? Yes. Or yes. is that just Roger Telephone? No, well, Rochester Tell was one of the first uh, um, phone companies in the country to go to a 5ESS environment. It, our small little independent company was one of the first to go. And the school they actually bought uh, Lucent Technologies, actually bought trainers into our location. And uh, we had our training center. Be, uh, they bought all the... Yeah, the trainers came to us to teach us because we would have a class size of, say, six people. And then whatever office was going to cut after, say, Brighton Henry had a town line row. That was our first one to cut over. So mm -hmm. those guys went to training first. And I actually stayed in the switch and maintained the electrical mechanical switch while they were in training. So when they came out of training and they cut over that switch, I got the next switch. So they sent me to training. And it was, I'm going to say, five weeks, four or five weeks. But it was done eight to five. Instead of going to my regular job, I went to training. So, And that's how they rotated it through. Whatever switch cut over next, you hit those people went to training. So, And it's amazing. That, like, being, do you think being picked, picked that early – uh, and being in the foundation with five ESS and roster telephone like that really probably helped propel your career to where it ended up finishing later on. Yeah, I would say, I, I would say it did. I mean, you know, it's like anything else. You first off, you feel good that they recognize you're a good worker, you're talented, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, being in on the ground floor, uh, a shooting trouble on a computer network is so different. Electrical, mechanical, you'd pull like uh, you see wiring prints out. And you would trace calls and say, hey, this call's not working, trying to figure out where it stopped. Go adjust the relay, replace a relay, clean a, a contact on a switch to you know fix it this is computer this is software so when we had a problem and in in 
it, something didn't work, we had to f- figure out why. And and you're doing it through software and not, you know, with your hands, so to speak, going in fi- physically fixing something. You're t- looking at code and and how a call goes through a computer and try and figure out what's wrong. And so it helped me in the 5B environment, you know, and what a lot of the things that we found in Rochester tell Lucent had to correct before they started rolling out switches to other companies. So we were kind of, I don't want to say the guinea pig. I think we were the either the third or fourth 5ESS switch in the country. So we were part of the team that what we found made it easier on, you know, phone companies throughout the country. And keep in mind, when I say, you know, uh, we found stuff, this is me and a whole bunch of hardworking people. This isn't just me or me and a couple guys. This is a whole team that found this stuff. And, and yeah, it helped me because when we, um, uh, later on, I made a switch in careers and we were with startup companies that ho- had a whole different um, software and switching equipment in it. So it helped me develop my uh, troubleshooting technique skills because going from, like I said, a manual fix it type thing to a computer. OK, what's causing this? We ran into so many other things at the company I went to because technology was ever changing. So. Interesting. What what do you think about that path looking back? Like like um Rochester Telephone and and how many years were you there when you retired? Like what year was it? I was 26, 26 years there. 26 wow. years at Rochester uh Tell and I was fortunate to get a retirement package where they gave you another 5 years. So it gave me the op- opportunity to retire at that point. And which was a great opportunity, but it wasn't necessarily something I was thinking of doing until it happened. But some of the things that they were doing, we were in a union environment and management obviously wasn't in union. So the company tended to take away some of our benefits where they couldn't take them away from the union guys. And it got to a point where they froze our pension. If we stayed there another 30 years, our pensions didn't get one penny higher. Uh, so a lot of us, uh, and there were some benefits medical that they were going to take away unless you retire by a certain date. So I took that opportunity. So it was kind of a negative package, negative incentive to retire. And, um, but because of what I was telling you with the, all these new phone companies starting up, uh, there were so many opportunities out there. Um, people were retiring and, uh, like I said, the reputation that the people in general, the hundreds of people that left Rochester tell their reputations were so good because of our training and experience. We were, these guys were not retired for very long and I wasn't either. I was retired for four weeks and I, in the fifth week I was working in Charlotte, North Carolina. So when you left the when you left Rochester Telephone though, uh, what what was your role there? And uh, obviously it was way different than when you started. But what was your role there when you left there? Uh, okay, I, my role there when I left, I was managing. I was one of a group of managers who managed a. Um, it was called a switching control center. And it, what it was is a central point where you monitored all the switching gear in the company, and if there was a problem with it, you fixed it or you were tasked with trying to fix it. So we worked hand in hand with other departments. 
outside departments and all that kind of stuff and um, worked on the switching gear. That was our major responsibility. That was my favorite place to come visit whenever, when you were, when you, in, in your work career, because it was like walking into NASA. Cause you'd walk yeah, in, it was like multi-leveled and then you had the computer, computer screens up front. And I believe it was a weather thing up there too, wasn't it? Yep. Like, yep. am I describing it somewhat right? Yep. Yep. It was set up like a, a mini theater on levels and the tech sat on the different levels and they had three big screens. And because of weather affected the telephone network news affected telephone. We had news and weather on constantly on two of the screens and the other screen was a status screen that gave you status on uh, all three of the locations. And then behind where the tech sit, they had a big conference room. So what would happen if you had a potential customer, you bring them in there with the curtains closed and then they say you start talking about how you're going to monitor the network and who's responsible then they'd open the current and you the curtain and you would see the big dog and pony show and ironically in the company i went to uh part of my responsibility with the team was creating three more of those uh show places um and uh i used a lot of the ideas we got from rochester in the other uh, centers. So, so now when you, uh, I know this answer before everybody else. Uh, so you had, you had, then you had a, a big life determination. So you're young, you're kind of like me. You, you finished a career yeah. at that point. How, how old are you when, when you decided to leave the Rochester Tell? I was 44, 45, 45 years old. Which means I was uh, 20, 25 yeah. at the time. Yeah. yeah. And I believe, uh, Jordan was, Jordan was just a baby then. Yep. Yep. For sure. And, uh, and, and you were trying to figure out what, what, what move to make next, right? So you, you have a yep. family here, uh, you have nobody mm -hmm. down South, but you have options. So, so tell me, take me through that process. Well, it was, it, first off, it was a extreme and not, uh, uh, an extremely lucrative offer, but it was a good offer. It was at a start a startup company. Um, like I said, they were starting up all over the place and I knew a couple people down in Charlotte that helped start that company and they heard I was retired and got a call and I got a job there. But in the, in the thought process at the time, uh, all three of my kids were grown and out in the business world. And Chris at the time was actually in Florida. So, uh, um, my middle boy. So, uh, I had two people in Rochester, one in Florida, and, uh, we had always thought we wanted to retire someplace, uh, away from the snow. So this opportunity came up and we said, what a perfect opportunity to go down and live this life in the South in Charlotte, North Carolina. And, um, see if that's actually where we want to be and use that to branch out to go check the beach areas which is areas we were interested in retirement so it was very tough leaving my kids uh as i alluded to early uh the the uh, the 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 good thing that i had is your mom was still there who would let me know if anything was going on uh, obviously I stayed in touch with you guys, but it was a good opportunity. And I thought it was good because it was halfway between you guys and Chris in Florida. And then like 
four months after I moved to Charlotte, he moved back to Rochester. So that that uh, uh, decision, the item that helped me make my decision uh, was no longer there. But at any rate, we went there. I liked the challenge. It was a good opportunity that I did. I was still able to uh, use the skills that I had uh, obtained at Rochester Tell. But it was tough leaving uh, leaving the kids, leaving the family. And um, but as often as I could, I got up here. Like I said, I was always there for the kids, even though remotely I was there to help and and do that. Yeah, but, and as far as and as far as our side of the family, there was never any resentment. We we love our father. We we had a good routine, right? That we we did a lot of things where we see each other several times a year. We made yeah. certain routine type things to traditional things, and some of that was first of all, let's talk about the the Charlotte area versus. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, Charlotte, excuse me, Charlotte, North Carolina, yeah. uh, and Rochester, New York, two different places. Uh, but we loved, I loved going down there. Uh, you know, uh, at first when my kids were growing up, I didn't get down there nearly as often as I wanted to because you're busy raising kids. They got soccer, they got cheerleading, they got this, they got yep. that. So I've, that then became a point where I became more flexible and got down there. But the, the, sh- Tell, tell the difference of living down there. Like, so when you first went down there, down south, Dad, tell me a little bit about um, living down there versus being in Rochester, New York first, and not just weather related. Yeah, well, yeah, weather is a big factor, but Rochester. And what year was this, by the way, again? Yeah, what year? So it was 97 I started there. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. So uh, when I moved down there, um, Charlotte was a city that was exploding. It was like a brand new city. One of the things I didn't like about Charlotte is it's like they threw a bomb in there and built everything new. There was downtown Charlotte didn't have a lot of character. But aside from that, it was beautiful. It's vibrant. And it's vibrant from 6 a.m. till midnight. There, Rochester, as I remember when I left, you didn't go downtown after five o'clock at night and the uh, stores were closing. And even now today, it's nowhere near what it was. As you know, uh, Charlotte, people go there at who live in the suburbs, go there at night. Um, and uh, Charlotte had uh, NFL football, NBA basketball, minor league hockey, minor league baseball. Um, they had so much going on there that you didn't have in Rochester. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, the, one of the other things you talk about culture people, I remember in Rochester getting on an elevator, pushing the button and staring at the doors. The first time when I went for my, my token, uh, job interview, I walked into a building in Charlotte, North Carolina with a bunch of people and when I got on that elevator, everybody on that elevator said hello or good morning. You walk downtown the streets. If you make eye contact with somebody, they smile or say hi. Uh, in Rochester, I felt, and I worked downtown for years, um, people walked looking at the sidewalk ahead of them. They didn't make eye contact. I, I felt people in Charlotte, it introduced me to a whole new way of life and uh and that's a lot of people that came up came from new york city to the company i work with from long island everybody has the same uh thought process it's so much friend friendlier people are friendlier down there and um 
it took a while to learn. I mean, I'd get on an elevator, people would say hi, I'd put my hand on my wallet in the back pocket, you know. It was like, what do you mean, hi? You know, and it got to be uh, where I had to really concentrate to respond to people and even initiate that kind of thing because that's not the way uh, Rochester was. So culturally, sports, um, uh, the newness of the city, um, I'll, I'll bet you Charlotte's got 30 bars and restaurants in downtown Charlotte. Uh, it, you don't have that in Rochester. So it was a. Uh, oh, we do. We did. Yeah, back then we didn't have that. Yeah, yeah. Back, right. back then you didn't. Yeah, and, um, but anyhow, and now it's got the Whitewater Center. You've been to. There is so much to do there. Um, oh. It's got a man made lake, Lake Norman, very close to Charlotte. Davidson, um, as you know from Davidson basketball, that college is there. Uh, I mean, there's so much there, and the lifestyle was so different. Now, on the flip flop, I'm a type personality. If when I went down there, I had to realize it, it, this is different uh, up in Rochester. Everything is go, go, go. You got a job, get it done. Boom, boom, boom. The quicker, the better. And down there, it's a whole different. Now, it's got nothing to do. I'm not saying people are lazy. I'm saying they're just the way they live is different. And they can sit back and smell the roses where I was just used to going 24 by 7. And so I had to learn at work. Not everybody worked like I did. Not everybody had that. Um, I don't want to say work ethic because that's not fair. They were raised that way. And uh, so that was an adjustment. Different lifestyle. It's a different lifestyle down there. Yeah. That was an adjust, adjustment to me. And uh, another thing is you, there's certain things I miss. And uh, God forbid, hopefully, I don't know who listens to your podcast, but I found down south they didn't – I couldn't find a good pizza in Charlotte. I couldn't find – a good Italian restaurant. I missed, you know, there was no Shaler's. As you know, I come to Rochester. I'm not there 24 hours. I've gone to Shaler's or I've gone to um, Tom and Nancy's for a pizza or Carbone's because it's stuff you just don't get uh, down south. Yeah, it stinks. The water down south is, and what it is for people is water when you get down to a certain point down in the southern part of the states, the water's different, so you can't make pizza the same way you can. Exactly right. So, that, that, so it's not anything that nobody doesn't know how to, and there hasn't been no others down there going. They can just, there's a lot of people who have left Rochester to go down and start businesses yep. down south thinking they could just start a pizza place and realize they're trucking water from New York down exactly there to make right. their pizza. And that's true. That sounds crazy, but that's 100% true yeah yeah the water quality is yeah. so crazy in different areas i mean that's that's really and our bodies are tuned to it as well like you know it's different water for your body as well oh yeah prostate differently so yep and like for you like when you went down there didn't you have to take steroid shots for um allergies, for allergies right which you didn't have in new york before yeah, you went not down there, steroid, correct? but not I'm, steroids, I'm yeah, but, but you, allergy yeah. shots yes allergy okay yeah, yeah so yeah, yeah. The environment down there, I was getting sinus infections from February to June, and they'd start up again in September. So after about five years um, down there, I finally went and I um, I was getting uh, allergy shots every two weeks, which helped. But it also helped that I quit smoking when I was down there, uh, changed my lifestyle a little bit. Um, my doctor was hesitant sending me to an allergist 
while he's smoking, because he says as long as you're smoking, allergy shots aren't going to do you any good. So, but once I got rid of that habit, 20 years after I should have, uh, but 16 day, 16 years later, I am uh, still smoke free. So. Amen to that. Yeah. So, so let's talk about your career a little bit more before we branch off, talk more family stuff and travel stuff. Yep. I just want to tie up. To, so, so you ended up with U.S. Lack was the company you went down there for, correct? Yes. U.S. Yeah. Lack and, was and a, so, Go ahead. Yep. I went there, U.S. Lack, and I was actually, when I got down there, I turned up the first three switching sites in the company. They had zero customers. And the first three switches had to be turned up, and it was in... Charlotte, Greensboro, Raleigh, uh, four, I'm sorry, and Atlanta. And three of the four were my responsibility. I didn't have the Atlanta switch, but the other three. So actually the first customer they put online in Charlotte was after me and my team, my whole team, uh, turned up that switch. So that was, I went there as a switch manager, and I had my responsibility down there was three switches. Uh, eventually, after uh, a while, the company started getting big. The repair centers, uh, the operation centers weren't developed, and I was working for um, a guy that I were that I knew in Rochester, and he talked to me and the uh, vice president, uh, executive VP of operations, and said we got to develop this network operation center. And so they pulled me out of the switches and I built the first network operation center for U.S. Lock. So and I remained there probably till uh, a couple of years before I left and um, where uh, the last couple of years I went back into operations. But U.S. Lock for people in Rochester that listen uh, to the podcast, uh, U.S. Lock was bought by Paytech which was founded by other XRTC people, Rochester Tell people. Um, and they were the same CLEC type of company that uh, US LEC was. And eventually they bought us and then eventually Windstream bought Paytech. So uh, I was there, worked there for 18 years down in Charlotte and um uh, had a good time. Uh, new technologies, uh, basically the same type of computer technology when I first started. After about uh, 10, uh, probably 10, 12 years, they started going to a different switch called a soft switch. Uh, and a soft switch took probably one tenth of the footprint that the uh, 5ESS switch uh, took. So what was done in a, say, a 60, uh, say a 3,000 square foot room, when they put the soft switch in, it took maybe about 100 square feet, 100 to 200 square feet. Amazing. And that's a savings in real estate alone for all these companies. Well, yeah, the problem was that they had leased uh, a lot of the space was wasn't owned. It was leased. So they had leased, say, three to 5,000 square foot. Now they put these small switches in. Now the lease comes up. And depending where the equipment is located, they couldn't really break up the 5,000 square foot to where we'd only, say, release uh, lease 500 square foot. In some cases, we were able to do it. Others, the landlord said, what am I going to do 
with this other square footage. And so, yeah, that got to be uh, a point of contention down the road. I'm sure of it. Because nobody certainly- realized how much it was streamlined. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they expected the other technology to be there for the company to be successful. So they leased three to 5,000 square foot. And like I said, when it was all said and done, maybe a thousand they needed uh, max. But on the flip side of that, heating, air conditioning costs were uh, electrical costs were greatly reduced with the new technology. As a director of operations of such a big telephone network, what were some of your biggest challenges you faced? Um, a most, of them. Well, a lot of it was uh, we leased a lot of the facilities to get the service out to the customer. So it wasn't in our control. We would, we didn't own a lot of what they call the last mile, which is out to the customer or the customer's location. Now we were in strictly a business. We sold to businesses only and we had huge businesses, Walgreens. We had probably 50% of all their stores in the country came into us like facilities or Paytech facilities down the road, uh, Bank of America. We did a ton of business. So when they had a problem, they were calling and saying, my my office, I have a, a, one of my bank sites is down. So now we got to get it up. Well, we would call the people that supply, supplied the facility for us. And we were, when they could get out there, they could get out there. And so we would take the heat from the customer and it was out of our control. But in our customer's eyes, that wasn't in our control. They bought service from us, but we had to lease it from somebody else. So if there was a, a cut cable that was going to take 18 hours to get fixed, it wasn't our guys out there fixing it. It was the cable guys from whoever we leased the facility from. So not having that kind of control was extremely, extremely frustrating. If it was in your control where you could be out there screaming, get in there and fix that. But you didn't have the kind of control as you would have if you owned everything. So that was probably my biggest frustration. Um, Mm -hmm. What about weather? Weather Weather-related challenges? uh, Other... um, for the most part, uh, people were great. For the most part, we were non-union environment, so you didn't have that um, union management type stuff that you get at some things. Uh, but we looked worked long hours, long days. A lot of switches that we were responsible for were in hurricane zones in Florida and up the East Coast. So, uh, you know, come hurricane season, uh, that was uh, that was always a huge concern, and we prepared for it as best we could. Uh, we had a switch site in New Orleans when Katrina hit, and our site was still up and working, but all the Bell South sites around weren't. So we couldn't get service to our customers, but it wasn't our fault. <laughs> You know, we could do it if Bell South's facilities were up. So, you know, a lot of that stuff is the same type of thing. Um, We had control over hiring and firing. If somebody wasn't doing the job, uh, you know, they weren't protected by a union sometimes. Uh, Unions are good. They had their place. I was in a union for 13 to 15 years. But working in a non-union environment also had benefits. Um, You know, other than that, it was... You know, you would go through times when business was slow um, and you had to, you know, uh, 
uh, lay off people. That was not a, a fun job. I, it was the worst part of my job, um, but it was a, a, a part of the business. So uh, yeah, me it's, as a it's manager, a big part of the telephone. I, I didn't yeah, so, mind the budgets yeah. trying to get. Uh, at one point, I had eight managers. I was a VP of operations. And at one point I had eight managers reporting to me. So making sure they got their budgets done so I could put my stuff together to give to my boss, you know, during budget time, it was kind of stressful, but you know, it's, it's what happens in business. I was thrilled to be in a startup company. And when us luck was bought by Paytech, it was a sad day because I looked at us luck as to, we built this thing and now it's, uh, being handed over to somebody else. So that was kind of tough adjustment to make, but I worked with Paytech under their umbrella for probably an extra, another seven, eight years. So uh, all's well and well. I enjoyed it. The challenges were different. I was thinking all the time uh, and uh, the troubleshooting was different than, you know, originally electrical mechanical. Then, then it went to computers and then it went to these soft switches. So you were always coming up with problems nobody has experienced before. So it was, it was a challenge. And I, and for me, I don't mind a challenge. It keeps, you know, we'd, we'd spend three day, three weeks trying to fix, find out what was causing a problem. We get that problem fixed and we would all sit there and say, bring it on. What's next? Not, Hey, thank God that's over. Now we can relax. We, the group I had with me was, okay, that one's done. Bring on the next challenge, you know? So. Yeah. And, and that's it, why I think so many of the people came from Roger Telephone and U.S. Slack and, and moved on to Paytech and Paytech became strong uh, because of that. There's a core of probably, you probably can name off the top of your head, 25 people that went through that cycle that really made the telephone industry strong uh, yep. for these companies. Um, but aside from that, you mentioned something earlier. I just want you to touch base on again real quickly because me working in the post office and monopolies and that kind of thing, you touched on the AT&T monopoly. Just well, just a little bit. Expand on what that did and and, and what happened just really quickly. And, and as when they broke can, it apart? Yeah, so basically for people, AT&T in the early 80s made itself so big that it owned pretty much all long-distance telephone, am I right, Dad, and some long, some local service in certain areas, but they basically controlled the whole industry, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. Isn't that what yeah, was developing I, I, before yeah. the federal government stopped them, right? Yeah, they were broken up into five different companies. AT&T was huge, They and, and they did own a ton of residential services for business, uh, residential customers in the long distance network. Almost everybody was forced to use AT&T and they became a monopoly. And then what happened, and don't quote me on the year, but in the early 80s, the 84 maybe, they broke apart. Uh, the federal government came in and said, no, you can't do this. So that one big phone company went to you had Southwest Bell, Southeast Bell, um, Bell Atlantic. It was divided into all these other big or, or good size companies. Uh, AT&T, then you had, you know, Sprint and MCI came into the picture. And then all these CLECs where I worked started because you had a lot more flexibility once AT&T was out of the picture. And there's some very smart people up there um, that uh, started these company. Uh, Tanganatra started, one of the guys started US Luck, one of the smartest telephone people I've ever met. Um, 
And uh, the guy that started uh, Paytech, Arunis Chasunis, another extremely smart telephone guy. A lot of respect for those guys and what they did with the CLEC industry because it was new to everybody. You didn't have Ma Bell there telling you what to do. We had to write up our own procedures, practices, order our own equipment, put everything up. Never been done before. So, uh, but that's what happened. They, uh, and, you know, slowly but surely, you're starting to see some of that coming back again where you have MCI, Verizon, you know, AT&T are the kind of like the big companies again. MCI bought Bell Atlantic and AT&T bought another one of the ones that used to be part of it. So they got to be careful. But now you got Verizon, MCI, AT&T. At least you got three where before it was just AT&T. So. Well, plus and you got wireless now too. So you're, you're adding another entire network. So now you have a wired network and a wireless network as well exactly as a fiber right. network. You actually have three networks now, right? I mean, you have a fiber network people are fighting for, the regular yeah. old telephone network through those switches, and then it's wireless network. So, right. so that's what helps spread the wealth a little bit. But it's funny you just said And the Ma residential Bell, service is dying, so... Yeah, no, absolutely. It's going to die soon. Yeah, that's definitely the one that's dying. But Ma yeah. Bell, you, re you referenced it. I'm on uh, Wikipedia right now. It's 1984. For people that want to look up the 18 Monopoly and want to know why the post office can't have a monopoly because they own, can't own our own fleet of planes, own fleet of trucks. Uh, otherwise, we would we would crush in that industry as well. The post office would. So the, the title of it is called The Kingsbury Commitment. In the Kingsbury Commitment, AT&T and the government reached an agreement that allowed AT&T, uh, otherwise known as Ma Bell, to continue operating as a monopoly while AT&T periodically faced scrutiny from regulars. The state of affairs continued until the company's breakup in 1984. And then it was break broken up, like my father just said. And Ma Bell was what AT&T and the old Bell company used to be called Ma Bell because everybody basically said whatever Ma said goes, right? <laughs> Is that why yeah. you guys... Uh, that's funny. Yeah. So... Yeah, so that's, that's a little taste of the telephone industry for everybody. I don't want to bore everybody too much on that. Yeah. Uh, but one of the things my dad mentioned earlier is I'm going to read a little post, that uh, a recent post that my dad put up. Sorry, Dad, if I'm uh, embarrassed you, but I don't think I will because you posted it. So uh, my, my father uh, has gone through a lot of different variations of exercise, not exercise, everything, but the best thing, he stopped smoking 16 years ago. But this post really made, this one made me smile so happy. He had one of my podcast shirt on, which I didn't pay him to do nothing. He's just the man. Uh, replenishing my electrolytes after a solid, uh, solid cardio session at the fitness center. Brian, thanks for the 60-minute athletic podcast, which worked out great with the timing of my workout. That was very, very nice of you to shout out to me. I appreciate that. And the fact <laughs> that you're at the, at the health center, that's awesome. Uh, but what, yep. one of the things I want to go back to is when you did quit smoking, uh, you and I, we talked a lot, even though we lived apart. Uh, and one of the things that you and you were worried about was, you know, what are you going to do when you get rid of smoking? Cause you knew that, you know, there's something else you kind of want to replace it with to help you get off of it. So one of the things, uh, my son and you and I decided to do was, uh, to kind of play a game of it. Right. So we decided to do, we wanted to hike as much of the Appalachian Trail as we could through Shenandoah Park. The reason why we show, we chose Shenandoah is because we had taken a trip there and really liked it. Um, uh, early on with, with my dad and, and his second wife uh, and my ex-wife and my kids when they were young, and we really had a good week there, uh, three, four days there where we met, and we thought that would be a good idea. My son was young. Uh, you know, the hiking's tough, but not too tough. I think Spencer was maybe... 16 years ago, you said, Dad? So, yeah, I would say. Yeah. Seven years well, was, Spencer must have been, had it couldn't have been that long ago because Spencer's 20 now and he was not 
uh, four years old when we were on the that trail, was he or was he was he? No, I, I would say he that? was about six. Yeah, six years old. So but my son at six. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, that's right. So, yeah, so so basically, what we did was we decided to do sections of Shenandoah Trail. We weren't going to take put backpacks on and strain strain our bodies. And obviously, my dad was going through body changes with quitting smoking. But we had several trips where my dad would leave Charlotte, my son and I would leave Rochester, New York. We'd meet in Shenandoah Park. We'd pick a spot to camp, and then we yep. basically would pick two directions from that campsite. So we did that a couple times, and then we had to like move around a little bit. But we basically have. All the Shenandoah Trail through Shenandoah Park, I think, except for like a 10-mile section at the top and maybe a 15 or 20-mile section at the bottom. All the rest of it, we've hiked, uh, yep. the three of us together. And at one point, my daughter and one of her friends were with us. But those trips were like, that was a lot of fun. Well, talk about your perspective from a grandfather and just the experiences. And we'll talk, talk a little bit about our, our Appalachian Trail Shenandoah a little bit. Yeah, as far as the uh, the biggest thing I got out of the initial trip was just the satisfaction that I was able to do it. I I was fifty five years old at the time, maybe fifty four. I had quit smoking about a year before that, and just the fact I could do that gave me you know reinforced that I did the right thing. Because there is no way I could have ever done that. Uh, but going camping with my with my son and my grandson, it's something that I'm ever always always going to remember. And that was such a great way to do it because you were out in nature. Uh, I don't remember which section it was we did, but we saw uh, mother bear and two cubs, uh, not maybe twenty five thirty foot max off the trail the deer you saw the camping experience in general uh that we had and just the bonding the stories that stu uh, stupid little things uh that we did the first trip uh for example spencer put me under so much pressure because we all brian as always has to make it a competition and he said okay we're going to go 12 miles today how long is it going to take us? And we all came up with some time frame. And so uh, Brian sent me out uh, in front. And I'm up there saying, I can't hold these two guys up. I'm going to get up there and go, go, go. And I'm up front. And every time I turn and look around, Spencer with his little short legs is 50 yards behind me on the trail. In the meantime, I got to stop and catch my breath because I'm going faster than I was in shape to do. And so they'd catch up. And after a while, we finally said, let's let Spencer lead so that I could at least keep my breathing somewhat regulated. But I remember towards the end, it was my time frame for completing 12 miles was totally off. And and uh, Brian, you and Spencer were very close. And I remember just about running the last mile on the Appalachian Trail so that Spencer would win uh, and com we would complete the run, uh, or complete closer the, to his time than mine. Time yes. frame than yours. Now I probably almost died doing it, but um, because you the, buckled over when we got to the car, you buckled over when you got to the car, and my uh, six-year-old no son was saying, "Grandpa, you're holding <laughs> us up from finishing." He he kept telling me that, and I said, okay, Spencer. And I, I remember one stretch running downhill, and how I didn't end up wheelbarrowing downhill, I I don't know. But And I also remember another part. I, I'm sorry if I'm tying you up here if we've got time. I love this. Another Keep going. time we were, 
we uh, we would pack lunches, and halfway up the trail, we had to cut across the parking lot, uh, cut across the road, and pick up the trail on the other side of the road. So we decided to stop and have something to eat. So we're sitting there having something to eat. Spence is probably six years old. I tease him about this all the time, because he always tells me he, how much he loves me, and he's we got a special relationship, and he uh, he likes to brown nose me and tell me I'm the greatest grandpa. Blah blah blah. So anyhow. We're sitting around having lunch, and two or three deer come out of the woods. And they're a little bit away from us and kind of getting curious and walking a little bit closer to us. They have no fear because there's so many people up in the woods and then walking the trail. And they start coming towards us. And Spencer was standing in front of us, and they got close enough where the one deer started sticking his nose out, trying to uh, smell uh, Spencer's sandwich, whatever it was he was eating at the time. He was probably five, six foot in front of me. All of a sudden, he turns and comes to me and says, Grandpa, hold my sandwich for a minute, will you? And then he went and stood behind, hid behind me and with me having the bait in my hand. So I go, yeah, you love me, but if it comes to uh, getting attacked, you're behind me and and put me out front, but just it feels just to, just to give Spencer a little wiggle room. I do have actually a photo from that trip where you see the deer's tongue, like within inches of a sandwich. I think before he actually <laughs> turned around and said, "Grandpa, here, take my sandwich." I, there was an attempt made at the sandwich by the deer. <laughs> but yes, and Spencer was slowly migrating behind my father. It was like one of those little like I don't know what's going on here, but I'm gonna slowly hide behind Grandpa right now. Like yeah, Grandpa, can you cute. hold my sandwich? for me oh yeah. sure Spencer. <laughs> but when the bear around the trail he had no Spencer had no fear he walked by those bear like they weren't even there he was like yeah, okay Spencer we're going. was actually ahead of us yeah he was leading us through the, yeah, through the bears it's him. like look bear I don't know if yeah. we I don't know if we would have saw him because they were covered pretty much by bushes and um he all of a sudden he turns to us and gives us a dirty look and puts his hand out for us to stop and gives us uh, the be quiet uh signal and um he stood there the whole time he stood there the whole time and yeah, it my was, son is definitely an outdoorsman folks yeah. he's a hiker he appreciates wildlife he he knows how to handle himself on a trail right early on man yep and we would start out in the only thing i told uh, i told you if you remember the very first hike we took i said take the highest peak that we're gonna hike because I knew after one day of hiking, because we hiked for two days, two full days. Always. We either did two or three days. Yep. Every time yeah, we did two it. or yep. three days. And I says, the very first one picked, the, you know, he had his uh, topographical map and everything. We picked the highest peak. I said, because I'm going to be sore the second day and I don't want to have the highest peak in front of me. So the first day we did the highest peak and next day we get up in the morning and we'd follow, we'd take two cars out, leave one car at the end, come back and hike to our car. And we did that uh, two or three years and twice. Uh, and so we did. I think we nailed pretty much like six uh uh, 60, uh, maybe not 60, maybe between 50 and 60 miles of Appalachian Trail we hiked. Yeah, I'd say it's about right. Yeah, that's right. I think Great we did 20 miles the first trip. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. the first two trips we did a lot. And then the third one, we had a couple of girls with us that slowed us down. It was like a fall yeah. trip. Uh, but it was, it was still a great experience. I mean, uh, just all of us being together and camping. Camping is one of the... But, but this... Uh, Back when we were growing up, though, you and mom definitely instilled this whole travel thing in our whole family, and then it is just catapulted. I mean, Kit, my our, my sister is uh, constantly travels for work. Uh, we we're 
family that's been to Disney a handful of times, so so travel. But like my mom would sacrifice. We'd be doing nothing all year long. She would work at the flower shop, save all the money for our one two week trip for the year. Like, and it was discipline. Like my mom would take us all to movies. Me and the kids. We always had vans, right? They had a man, van and minivan growing up because it was however many kids we could fit in the van. Whether it was you or mom driving, however many kids fit in the van, that's who we were taking. Yep. Yep. Good times. I remember sitting the way back of that van with no back seat with like four kids in the way back with no seat belts, no back seat, nothing. We were just sitting on metal and maybe we put down some pads or pillows or something. I don't even remember what we sat on back there. Oh, the wheel wells. We sat on the wheel wells. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Holy yeah, smokes, that, that blue was, white van. Yeah. Yeah, it was good times. No, sure. without a doubt. So, yeah, so uh, a little bit more. So now you've gone from, from Charlotte, Dad. Uh, oh, first, let's talk about, all right, we need to razz on me a little bit here, all right, because I know everybody on the podcast. So we talked about exercise a little bit. What's your routine right now, Pops? You're retired. You're at, you're at Myrtle Beach. You're near the beach. Let's talk about your retirement and your, and your workout. Let's talk a little bit about this stuff that our podcast likes to focus on, like cannabis and the exercise. So so you, you can give a good perspective on uh, validating some of my cannabis experience, and then we can talk about how you've changed your perception on maybe a little bit in your life. Uh, but the exercise component first. So you're retired, you and your wife are down in, in the Merle Beach area, and, and I know you guys have your little routine going on. So in retirement, what, what's become important to you as far as fitness? Well, as far as fitness, probably when I first moved down here two and a half years ago, we were enjoying the beach life, and it got out of control. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, we were trying different restaurants, meeting out with people and eating and all that. And um, so uh, my weight went crazy. And uh, uh, but we're enjoying the beach life. That's what I retired to. I like going out and having cocktails and meeting people. And then when you're out having cocktails, you end up eating not always a good food and et cetera, et cetera. So we had, I did have, I, I went through um, spells where I would walk, we would walk the beach and do some power walking, but it was never a consistent type thing. And quite frankly, what little we were doing wasn't enough to uh, compensate for what we were putting in into our body. So at any rate, long story short, we're enjoying the life down here. We're in Merle's Inlet. Um, uh, family has come down. We've, uh, just had family down here. Chris and, uh, uh, some of Andrea's family were down here. We had a great time. Uh, and, uh, but what happened is around the December, January timeframe, uh, I decided that we had to address, we decided, uh, between the two of us that it was time to, uh, address our issues so we kind of took a vacation uh, for a couple months, um, not quite that long, maybe six, seven weeks. We decided we weren't going to go out and we were going to focus on health, uh, focus on exercise and focus on uh, fixing some bad eating habits. So we've done that. I still have a goal in mind that I want to lose. Uh, and so does Andrea. And we're getting closer and closer to the goals every day. And uh, at that point, we feel comfortable that we can go back to uh, right now. We're uh, going out a couple times a week, uh, but we're in uh, drinking. Uh, we have our drinks. We have a good time. Uh, we're not eat. We're eating smart when we're out. We're eating salads or chicken salads, that kind of thing. No, no more um, sharing a pizza or <laughs> uh, some of the other fried foods that we were uh uh, addicted to 
Uh, mm -hmm. We don't eat fried food anymore. We uh, don't eat uh, uh, white bread anymore. Occasionally, we will have uh, low-carb uh, type stuff. But at any rate, we combined a uh, Atkins diet with uh, fitness and um, been very successful uh, with it. And uh, like I say, I don't share numbers all the time, but I will say I got probably 13 to 14 pounds I still want to lose. But uh, since January 3rd of this year, I've lost around 39 pounds. So that's amazing. I'm so proud of you, Pops. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a good thing. It's, really, it's, truly. Yeah. It's great getting into clothes. I, I always had this thing in my mind I was going to get healthier. And I saved all my smaller clothes. And uh, fortunately, I'm a guy. And styles don't change from us <laughs> very much. And, uh, so depending now, on who you talk to <laughs> and, uh, uh, at least for me, they don't change. And so the same cargo shorts I wore before I can wear now the same shorts, uh, same style golf shirts and, um, getting into stuff. I've, uh, uh, as of this morning, I am six inches off my waistline. Uh, so, uh, all good. All yeah, good. Yeah, I love to hear it. Yeah, yeah and, and yeah. living away from you, knowing that you got the, the healthy lifestyle and, and you're consistently um, healthier every day, and thinking about it, it makes me feel less stressed about any potential issues with you guys. Yeah, and, and, nice. and I, 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 I'm not going to give you 100 percent of the credit, but your uh, uh, your concern and advice. It certainly was a motivating factor, although looking in my mirror was a much more stronger motivating factor than uh, what you were doing. But you certainly helped me. And we've talked on the phone a couple of times about changing up what I'm doing, which has helped, too. Um, well, yeah, and I just started uh, changing my routine a little bit to incorporate uh, one of the things you were telling me about. So, um, yeah. Uh, Kudos to everybody that uh, was concerned and gave me their advice. But uh, like I said, too, I think uh, just looking in the mirror was enough to to trigger me and uh, to get me going uh, to finally put it into play. And the good thing is we go six days a week. We do an hour of intense cardio. Um, and uh, when we're done, uh, it, it's uh, we take one day off a week to let our body recoup. And uh, to be honest with you on that day, I'm, uh, I'm always saying, you know, maybe I'll go up there just for a half hour and ride the bike, you know? So it's almost like I feel guilty when I'm not doing it, but I know for my body to heal and recover, it's necessary to do that. So anyhow, no, that's right. all's you gotta good be down here. And, and, you, and you know, yeah, we've talked about that a lot. You got to have your rest time, right? You got, you, no matter if yep. you're in the most beautiful area, the rest time has to be built in to let your body heal. Yep. And, and, and to uh, go just a little bit further, and I won't uh, dwell on it, but we've also, as far as our lifestyle, we're, we're starting to knock off our bucket list things. Uh, last year, we did a patriotic tour and uh, uh, visited some of the historic sites on the uh, East Coast between Merle's Inlet and uh, Rochester, New York, stopped and did some things uh, in another 10 days we're heading out to vegas for a couple of days going to see jordan uh, my beautiful granddaughter and her husband uh spend a couple of days with them and then we're doing a tour of california some of the spots on our bucket list so that's our focus now is starting here uh uh do some of those 
Uh, it'll be a little more difficult doing keeping our fitness routine in check when we're over there, but we're aware of the pitfalls and going to take advantage of uh, fitness centers in the hotels and stuff like that so we can keep it in check. So, well, the nice thing is when you're in different areas, you don't need the fit, fitness center so much. You can actually just go out and say, let's explore and walk a couple miles. And exactly. Get, get right. in and explore. And a lot of the stuff so we're going nice to do. when you travel. Right. A lot of stuff we're going to do. You can rent bikes on the beach in California or whatever, so you can mix in your workouts yeah. just to do it a different way, right? Like in the yeah. routine of the day. And we're we're not, when we go to Vegas, we're planning to go to Grand Canyon. We're planning to walk uh, old and new Vegas. So we'll be putting 30,000 steps on our Fitbits every day. So whether I get to go to the gym or not, as long as I'm not sitting there having fried food and bad stuff in my body, uh, uh, in, you know, uh, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. And, and and if you're living that way every day, you can do that every once in a while at night and not feel guilty because you know, generally speaking, you're doing it right, right? Yeah, that's, that's the happy right. medium, right? You get to that point where you feel comfortable every day so you can you can cheat every once in a while or, yep. or, or you can pick your spots, right? That's, yep, that's exactly you can find right. the, the happy medium, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, because because for us, to be honest, uh, men haven't lived long lives in our family, so we have to buck the system. That's what we're here to do, pops. Is buck yep. this trend in our family, right? Yeah, like we got these men are what, these men are what? Not many men in the lane side over seventy. And I think my grandpa Smith is what was the only one over seventy in the other side. So so yeah. we're gonna be fighting this trend. Uh, all right, quick question, pops. Was I born out of the womb with the energy that I have now? Wow, <clears throat> I would. I would say, uh, I would say you were very energetic, but you right now are going a hundred miles an hour. Uh, you were always busy as a kid, always wanting to do anything from the, uh, like you touched on earlier, I'd come home from working and you were barely a year and a half old and you had a little Fisher Price basketball thing and I'd walk in the door and you were standing there next to your hoop with the ball in your hand saying back a ball daddy all you want to do is play uh and you were always active um but all the kids were but it just seems to me right now that you are not only physically active um exercise wise biking running uh triathlons marathon all that kind of stuff but you are also mentally busy all the time and uh, so I would say, I would say in uh, not quite is, I don't know if you were mentally as busy as you were physically as busy growing up, if you, if I'm mm -hmm. making sense. Well, what about my intensity level? That, that's, that's what I think. Well, your intensity level is, is uh, I, I've, I've heard on the podcast that, uh, you know, you, you got a lot of that from knowing the Smith business and trying to run a business and stuff yeah. like that. But I also think you got a lot of that from, uh, I'll take credit for some of that because oh, I, no was, yeah. I was an A-type personality running around, always doing things. Uh, very, I, I would think um, you growing up and knowing me, you probably can't remember too many times I just sat there. I don't think I read a book until I was 40 years old. Um, from 20 to 40 years old. I don't think I've read a book. I didn't take time to do it. I was always. Yeah, we didn't have time. We were going, man. Yeah. So I think I, and uh, your intensity was there. Um, and you, uh, you gravitated towards people that were like you, friends, kids you hung out with, the ones ride the bikes, go all over on whatever, wherever it was, whether in the neighborhood or outside of the neighborhood. 
um, you gravitated in uh, towards that. You had friends who were like you. And uh, I would say from day one, you were probably one of the most competitive people I've ever met in my life. And I'm <laughs> extremely competitive, but uh, you take it to another level. For sure, you had to you had to sit me on the picnic table a handful of times. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> but you're also creative. I mean, the trip we took to California, you and I, and and wanted to do something different and wacky, and uh, coming up with the song, we sang a bit of the song every day, and not going to bore everybody with that. But uh, always looking. You can to look at our main Facebook for the moving right along meme. If yeah, anybody yeah, wants to was, look it up, it, but it was, it's well worth it. It was well worth it. it for me, way out of the box and something, quite frankly, I wouldn't have thought to do. So you're creative, you're enthusiastic. You certainly are passionate about what you believe in. Uh, and you're, uh, uh, you know, uh, so you've been that way for a long time, but I, I think as far as overall intensity, it's up a notch in the last probably four or five years. So, so those days you had to sit me down at the picnic table. You couldn't even have shut me down back. I remember there was one time <laughs> I, I remember this, I remember this so distinctly. Now my dad said earlier, you know, we were, we were that house where everybody came. We really were the house where everybody came. Like we had base, we, we had dirt spots for bases in our yard for wiffle ball, kickball games. Like, like we, like we did everything. Like when we pulled in the pool backyard, we still were trying to do stuff around the pool <laughs> and the pool had a basketball hoop and a, and a slide. And trust me, there was a lot of crazy stuff done on those things. But when we had the full field, when we were really young, my dad would get home. We were all chomping at the bit for this man to get home. I don't, this poor man had water on his knees for playing nerf basketball with me and my brother in the basement this <laughs> yeah. man he, he hasn't even mentioned this kind of crap but so so my dad was right there in the mix he ended up being the official pitcher kind of the moderator of everybody outside right and we had a street with a lot of kids so we had we would probably have 10 to 15 kids in our backyard playing a wiffle or, or kickball game pretty much four or five nights a week uh, am I right, Dan? Oh, for yeah, about for four sure. Or five years there. I mean, yep. that's not undervaluing at all. It was my house. Like yeah. we were the Lane House was where everybody came on Woodcroft Drive and 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 the street behind us. Um, so, anyways, that was the best. But there was this one game I remember when oh, you were pitching and I was at third base and. Uh, there was something about getting it out and I couldn't score and I knew it doesn't matter if I scored or not, but you're like, if you don't score before I get the out at first, you're not, that run doesn't count. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That's not the rules of baseball. And I, I think I was ready to go to fisticuffs with you. And you were finally like, get over on the picnic table. And if I don't remember, it was like the end of the night when it was dark, we shouldn't have been playing anymore. I was overtired, I'm sure. And I was an asshole. I'm going to say it straight. I know I was an asshole that night. And my dad would push my buttons to be like, dude, it's not about winning every time. Like you try to instill that in me and i ignored it like you tried dad i i truly as far as your competitiveness i truly created a monster i when you were very very small playing nerf basketball i would get on my knees whether it was nerf basketball football whatever it was and i so enjoyed playing with you guys that i would let you win all the time because i didn't want you to lose and not want to play anymore. So I was kind of selfish and I was like, well, unfortunately over the years, you became even more and more competitive. And one of the things you didn't like to do was lose. And I remember I playing, I you guys, play, you guys out in the yard playing where most parents support their children. 
I would do everything <laughs> to make sure you lost because <laughs> you were so in your face when you would win that I, and uh, with Kim and Chris, I do anything to help them win. But if we had 12 kids out there, whoever's team you were on was going to get bad calls because I'd call it in favor of the other team, whether it was safe or out, because you needed to be taken down a peg. And for the record, I knew that was going on, and I would fight extra hard knowing I would have to overcompensate for the bullcrap I couldn't control. <laughs> it was such a game. And you were the opposite. You were the opposite. You wanted to beat Spencer in no matter what you played. And I remember the story you told me you were playing soccer and you were on the other team and you scored a goal and you were typically prancing around. Spencer was playing on the opposite team as you. You got a goal. You prancing around like you always do when you score a goal. And Spencer came up from behind and took you out at the knees and knocked you down. And you said, what the heck did you do that for, Spencer? Why did you do that? And he said, because you scored a goal. When I'm on your team, you don't score. But when you're against me, you want to score every time. So I took you out. And I'm picturing I wasn't there for it. I wish I was. But that was had to be one of the classic He was things. in kindergarten. Oh, man. So anyhow, I created folks out there that know so Brian, funny. know how competitive he is. I'm going to take some of the blame for that. And I apologize. So. I love it. I'm sure you're going to hear about that. <laughs> That's such a good story. The, yes, Mike had a competitive nature. That is, I would say, one of my uh, one of my negative traits is when I get in a competitive environment. I've actually learned to take myself out of board uh, board games with family sometimes a little bit on games where I know I might get a little goofy. But when you put me on a basketball court, my cousin's husband Devin will tell you. I get a little bit different. So I try to be friends with everybody afterwards. But when I'm on that court, I want to rip your throat out and put it on the sideline until the game's over. And then when we win, I'll give it back to you and I'll sew it back up for you. Like, like there's something when I step on that basketboard, I can't take it out of me, dad. It just, it's been there. Yeah. Yeah. But it's tell me when you came home thing. from work, was it, no, when you came home from work though, was it in the wintertime? Was the driveway always beautifully manicured when we had that basketball hoop? I just want, I just well, want to sure put that was. There, yeah. like, there was never a speck of snow when you came home from work, was there? Absolutely. That driveway was always clear. And you never had to shovel that driveway. I don't yeah. think you ever shoveled the driveway <laughs> once I turned six years old. You never had to worry about that driveway ever. Well, at least the part up by the basket, the heavy well, stuff not out just of the that. road was always there. Well, yeah, yeah. But th that'll depend on what we were trying to make jumps to jump into the road coming down the hill. Cause we had the hill down the driveway. So we would try and leave that stuff for our jumps into the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was always a madness method to the madness. Oh, Do you remember yeah. when we used to take the wheelbarrows, the small wheel, the, the small wagons, not wheelbarrows, the small wagons, yeah. the little, small, like little flyer wagons. And we would ride them like a luge down the driveway. And then you'd hit the, you'd hit the, like the rain gutter there and you'd hope you'd stay on. Cause if not, you'd flip off of it. If you stay on you could fly down the road all the way down to you remember when we used to do that yeah oh yeah well, i can tell you one more really quick story and remind you about it but uh, uh did you do you remember the movie the christmas story oh please we're gonna tell this story okay go ahead yeah <laughs> so go ahead, tell the story we were, we were down at a uh small catholic 
school. Mer- Mercy, Mercy uh, Grammar School. And they had a hill there, and kids were uh, sliding there. And Brian was, I don't know, he was probably five or six, maybe. No, and, a little older because we had Kimmy there, too. Uh, so, okay, so, so a little bit older. So, uh, well, you should have known better or, yeah, then. Exactly. Because he'd seen years the movie old, about 10 times. And we, there was, he was watching the kids going down the hill. And we were holding on to this metal railing. And didn't he get his tongue stuck to that railing? And he sounded just like the guy in um, Christmas Story trying to talk while his tongue was stuck. Oh, and so actually stupid. most of the people around us were saying, let him stay like that for a while. But <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> no way that happened. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. So I, um, whoo-wee, you're going to be a great grandfather and I'm going to be a grandfather. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm going to be a great grandfather and I can't wait. I can't wait. It's a wild to say. And that, Jordan's going to be a fantastic mother. So, and Alex, he'll be a good dad too. He'll be a great. Yeah, they're going to be great too. parents. Yeah. So I just got back. I didn't show you yet, or I haven't posted it yet. But I just got back Spencer's first set of skis that I had let someone borrow in case he wanted to teach his son how to ski. So I have my son's original first set of snow skis, which I will be teaching my grandson how to ski with. Oh, excellent! Cool. Yeah, yeah. And they'll be That's coming back stuff. to Rochester, so you're going to get to enjoy them a lot. Yeah, come December, yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be spoiled out of our minds. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Bob Pye wasn't here today. Uh, my dad has known Bob Pye, my co-host, the exact same length of time I have because Bob and I uh, got to know each other from working together originally. And my dad was a regular at Friendlies back in the day, and all the Friendlies in Rochester now have just closed. Dad, officially, yeah, I saw just that. so you know. Yeah. Um, so so anyways, so my dad knew Bob. So I just want to touch base on a little more health aspect before we finish with the cannabis, uh, with, with a little cannabis talk between me and my father. But uh, Bob's not here. He's still suffering from the gallbladder. My dad has his gallbladder out. Uh, so for people who don't haven't had that procedure before, uh, dad, what, what kind of issues you didn't know much about it before when you had your gallbladder out, the append- appendectomy, like all that kind of stuff. Like, like tell about about your experience with the gallbladder. So people put Bob's experience in perspective. <laughs> all right. I'll, tr- I'll try and do this real quick. I had, uh, I had experienced a sharp, uh, pain right under my right shoulder blade. And it literally felt like somebody was sticking a knife in there and uh, it, it, it it would double me over. And unfortunately, I'm going to say this uh, as kind of a warning to folks. Don't ignore that crap, uh, because what happened, I had that sharp pain on and off. I'm going to say once every three or four months for a couple of years. And I would just lay down and I'd kind of stretch and it would kind of go away, not thinking anything of it. Well, it got to be very, very unbearable. And uh, I self-diagnosed. I went online. I said, what could cause this pain? I don't like going to doctors. What could cause this? And they were talking about potentially it could be gallbladder. And they said, but it's usually uh, tenderness in under the rib cage where the gallbladder sits, not under the rib cage, but in the area. And so I laid down and I kind of pushed a little bit. When I pushed, I felt a little pain. So I ended up going to the hospital and they took out my, did all kinds of blood work because they didn't know what it was initially. Uh, because the thing I went in there was this pain in my back. I, I, it not, I just couldn't take it. It was uh, bring me to tears. Uh, the only way if I wasn't laying down that I could be out of pain. 
and and I'm thinking, you know, upper shoulder blade is a long way from your gallbladder. Well, yeah, there's a lot of soft tissue stuff in there, but yeah. yeah well, it's called a re- either referred or related pain, nerve pain. Mm-hmm. And you could actually feel a pain there, uh, your nerves getting inflamed, and you feel pain there, even though that's not the location of where the issue is. So at any rate, I went in there, and they did all kinds of tests and uh, did an ultrasound in the area of uh, my kidneys and all that. And they saw my gallbladder was enlarged and there was a couple stones in there. So they went and did the uh, surgery uh, on my head and removed my gallbladder. And uh, after they have a surgery like that, what's the, what's the concerns? Well, actually it's so routine right now that there's very little concern after that surgery. Uh, they, they go in very small now on small incisions. They put like three incisions in you, one for a light, one for a camera and the other for the tool. They go in and kind of deflate the gallbladder and pull it out. Um, so at any rate, I went home the very next day. Um, it, the gallbladder was inflamed. So it's usually an outpatient thing, but they kept me one extra day. Uh, went home and I said, thank God, I'll never. And I asked them about the pain and they talked about the referral pain. A lot of people that have gallbladder, I don't know what Bob had, uh, think they're having a heart attack. They get a pain in the middle of their chest. Well, he actually had stones, so he knew it was a gallbladder. So yeah, there's no okay. stuff. But. So if you don't know, if you're not experiencing pain in the area of the gallbladder, uh, some people get this referral pain in their chest, like they're having a heart attack. A lot of people that go f- in the hospital thinking they're having a heart attack, I actually had a gallbladder attack. At any rate, I went home uh, probably 18 hours after I got home. That exact same pain came back to my back. And, um, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, I thought I was done with this. So I went to the hospital. I couldn't stand up. I actually walked in the hospital at a 90 degree angle. Um, They pulled me in the back room, uh, did some tests. I explained what was going on. I said, it's the same pain I had before. Uh, They didn't know if I had a blood clot in my lung because the pain was where it was located. Uh, So they did a full CAT scan. Before that happened, they uh, took a urine sample. And I peed in a cup and it was dark brown. And uh, they immediately asked me if I had liver disease. And I said, no, my last physical I got uh, eight months ago, liver, everything was normal. And they said, you said you were here a couple of days ago. We're going to send you for a CAT scan and we're going to check your blood results from a couple of days ago. Did the CAT scan and they found that they lost a stone when they pulled the gallbladder out and the stone went into uh, the duct that goes into my liver and it plugged up my liver. And um, so they uh, did a surgery the following morning and and the surgery they did, they didn't actually do a surgery, but just uh, they went down through my throat, went through all my intestines and out through there and somehow got there and, plucked out my the yeah, stone it out. Yeah. and then they deposited it in my intestines so it would be washed out uh perfect and uh but it took care of it so yeah. uh but the ironic thing with this whole thing oh and they had before they did the surgery they came back and said you're 100 percent right the blood work we did two days ago showed your liver completely normal my liver was actually the 
test results, not getting into a lot of them, but one of them, the one of the readings should have been 20 and mine was 600. And um, that's how bad it was. My liver was close to shutdown. So uh, anyhow, I recovered from it. Uh, word to the wise on this. Um, you know, I, I'm, I got a busy life here. You can't call me to self-diagnose for you like I did for myself, like an idiot. Uh, you get little pains and stuff like that. And uh, there's a reason your body is is giving you that pain. And um, yeah, get it taken care of. That's right. Yeah. Take care of it. Yeah. All right. So uh, I want to close on this cannabis usage. You have been to- very tolerant of my usage. You've pretty much uh, known that I've been a cannabis user since 17. I think I was pretty honest with you right from the get go when it started. No, actually, uh, I didn't, but I, I didn't know the Generally extent. speaking, you kind of knew. Yeah, yeah. You, you knew what was going on, just not right. the extent. But you also yep. saw that I was successful in college. I was doing what I needed to do. I was working three yep. jobs in college all the way through, and I graduated yep. and had my daughter, and bam, I was fatherhood. So, yeah. so you see my cannabis usage and my lifestyle. So you tolerated it from afar, knowing that I was doing things I need to be doing, right? I mean, what was your perspective from afar? Because remember, you were from afar most of the time and then i just want to talk about just i want you to talk a little bit about how you used to view cannabis and how you view it now uh, I, okay um as far as being tolerant about it uh i never smelt it on you never was uh, you know you never were around me doing it uh so it was kind of exactly what you said um i know what was going on i also knew that you uh, were responsible uh, I certainly didn't know the extent that I've heard through these podcasts that that you were a daily user since you were 17. Uh, I wouldn't have ever said that. Um, but either way, uh, because I had used, uh, uh, I had a child in the 60s, I had minimal use. I was, a, but I, I'll explain that when I when I do, but I understood it. I understood the drug more than, say, your mom did. Um, uh, I, I, because I experienced it, I knew what to expect, uh, you know, and that type of thing. So I, I and I knew my involvement was. It, it, I wasn't as concerned as maybe a different uh, parent or parents would be. Um, but mm-hmm. also I now, saw now, how, your, what was my alcohol usage in that time period too? Do you remember what that was? Like, uh, so you only saw me when I came down on trips or when you came down for the holidays, but you, you never saw an excessive alcohol usage, right? You no, saw, I like, never, especially when you kids, I, I barely I, ever absolutely drank. Absolutely not. Uh, I right? never, like, when I, I went down you, South, you never even had alcohol for me really set up. Pardon me? I mean, you always made sure. So my dad was always great when he hosted us down in Charlotte or Myrtle Beach, wherever he is. He always makes sure like everybody's needs are met. He's phenomenal. Like this man is phenomenally generous. Um, <laughs> and I'm just trying to think back. I never made sure like you never had to make sure there's a certain case of beer in the fridge for me or a certain like like I never mandated it. Right. You know, we never worried. It was like we just drank slightly. But the whole time I was around you, I was always, you know, I was always using the cannabis, but I did it sensibly and I tried to be respectful about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you did. And no, you never, other than that, and I wasn't there for the beer ball fiasco, but, uh, yeah, but that's, we're talking about one high school party right now. Let's let's be realistic about what there was no, uh, uh, and you were a smart drinker too, because you have, as for most people that don't know you, you don't have a, a real strong tolerance for, uh, especially liquor and, um, so you were careful, you were aware of it and you were always careful on how much you put in your body too. So no, I would say, uh, overall, no, 
Because uh, if I did both, you'd probably have, you know, there probably you probably would have some issues, I'm sure. I'm sorry? What? If I had some kind of, if, I, if you saw me using alcohol to, to the extent of what most people did while they're raising kids and the cannabis on top of it, there, there potentially yeah. could have been some kind right. of issue there. So if, if you're living the good life uh, and the responsible life and uh, not putting jeopardy or your family life in, which I never saw you were, uh, I guess I wasn't really concerned about it, to be honest with you. So- so how has your, now your perspective changed from, from now you're a hippie and, and, uh, you didn't smoke much as a kid. I no. know you only smoked a handful of times. Uh, but what's, how has your perspective changed from being someone who's very minimal with it to, to what you're considering now, as far as a, a proper usage for you? For well, you? Uh, well, first off, let me clarify here. I went, uh, in my early twenties for about a, a year. I may went, maybe, uh, smoke pot, maybe. 20 times in that year in 20, 21 year old. Once I had my kids, I didn't smoke pot, uh, until later on. And, uh, in my thirties, I also went through another year thing where maybe 20 times in that year I smoked pot, but that was it between 20 and 33. And then between 33 and probably 60, I may mm-hmm. have toked once or twice. Uh, even, even now, if somebody said, Hey, do you want to go out? Would you, I'm going to go out in the garage. I might go out with them. Uh, but, uh, things have changed too. I was, when I was 20, I was so paranoid smoking uh pot. And that's the reason I didn't is because once I had kids, I got a kid, I got a full-time job. I'm not going to lose either one of those things. And in the late sixties, early seventies, you didn't want to get caught. And, uh, so that, that was part of the reason that I didn't do it. Uh, I'm looking into right now, CBD products cause I have arthritis thanks to you and Chris and being on my knees all the time playing. I will take the blame you. for that. Yes. Yeah. Pardon me. I will take the blame. Uh, for that. Yeah. Uh, so I've been looking at CBD products and I'm thinking I want to try one and see if it helps. I, I also have, uh, self-diagnosed. Well, I know I got arthritis. I've been told by the doctor, but I don't want to get cortisone shots and I'm not looking to get a replacement right now. So I got some compression sleeves. You know what they are. You've probably had them for your feet. I use mm-hmm. them on my knees to help with, uh, keep the inflammation down while I'm working out. So, so you're indulging sometimes with friends with joints. Yeah, That's what I'm getting to, Pops. Come on, let's get to the root. You know, we're you're dancing around it here, Pops. Well, well no, I, I will indulge with friends, but I'm probably I'm not doing it probably uh, hardly at all. I, yeah, yeah. So I, CBD I, I, is what I, you're I truly, I'm I, I truly you, Pops, you know. am not. And uh, I had a bad experience with a cookie once, and I just want to have that high that I got off of when I was – uh, 20 years old or 33 years old. I want to get that. I like that feeling just like that to mellow out. And I know nowadays you got to be so careful because they're different grades. And I'm learning more and more about that all the time where you have to find out where your tolerance level is. And, um, you know, still down here, it's not like I can walk out and buy it wherever I want. So it's kind of like opportunity. And, uh, or if I get a little gift from somebody where I can go home and, you know, have a couple hits and stuff. I, yeah. Okay. I would do that. I love it. I love it. 
All right, we got to end this, Pops. Uh, uh, thank you so much for coming on the, uh, my podcast, finally. I know you are helping to spread my message, uh, and I appreciate it. I appreciate everything you've ever done for me. Uh, I love you dearly, and, and I'm so glad that people can hear your story to add this side of my life so they can get a little perspective, more perspective on, on, on where I come from and why my message is what it is and why I care so much about spreading it positively. So, Dad, Absolutely. thanks for joining us today. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of new stuff coming out, and I wish that – uh, FDA would get on the ball and start doing testing and start uh, doing case studies and believing it and advertising that what good it does, whether it's Parkinson, you should be allowed to say it's going to help you. Uh, one uh, last thing, Brian, keep an eye out. It's bike week. So your shirt's going to get some exposure here Saturday and Sunday while I'm out. I appreciate that. Thanks, Pops. Yeah. And uh, have a good Mother's Day weekend. Your mom has passed, too. I know you'll be thinking about her, my grandmother. Um, but I love you dearly. I will talk to you soon, love Pops. Love you, too, Brian. And thanks for joining us. Continued and, uh, and success with your podcast and what you're doing with your life. Thanks. I appreciate it, Pops. Okay, and, love you. Uh, from the studio, we sign off saying, take care of your mother. Happy Mother's Day. Do it the whole month. Do not let them cook or clean the dish on Mother's Day. Gosh darn it. Do it all, boys. Let them sit on the couch and look at you as a maid. Put those aprons on. All right. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>